I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Last week, the Saudi-led coalition waging war in Yemen agreed to a two-month ceasefire with the Houthis. It's the most significant breakthrough in seven years of war. A two-month truce has been agreed by warring parties in the country. It's the first nationwide truce agreed since 2016 in a war which has killed nearly 400,000 people. This truce must be a first step to ending Yemen's devastating war. Hassan Al-Tayeb has been lobbying Congress to end it for years. Hassan joins us now. Hassan Al-Tayeb, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me on. And so Hassan is the legislative director for Middle East Affairs for the uh, Friends Committee on uh, National Legislation. Did I get that right? That's right. All right. Nothing to it. Uh, Which is a kind of Quaker anti-war organization that has been working on the Yemen war for, you know, since the Yemen war has has existed. And so you you and I ran into each other at an event in Washington on uh, April 1st. You came up to me and and said, what incredible news about the ceasefire in Yemen. I had been offline for the last hour or two, and I thought you were pulling the cruelest April Fool's joke that had ever been leveled. But it turns out that no, uh, there actually had been out of the blue, not out of the blue, but uh, there was not a lot of hope that this was headed in the right direction. Yet the various parties got together and have agreed to this two-month ceasefire that has people now genuinely hopeful that this ceasefire could result in a long-term end to this conflict. Uh, so what, what, what brought this about? Well, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, there's a lot of exciting news happening in, in Yemen. And, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it. It's obviously a fragile truce. The UN brokered this to be a two-month ceasefire um, you know, for the the months of Ramadan uh, here, and I, you know, really hopeful that it'll happen. The basic framework is that there would be a cessation of hostilities and military operations, and end to cross border attacks. There would also be, uh, you know, lifting of some restrictions on ports of entry, and uh, you know, allowing fuel ships finally to get into the ports of entry, and also to open up Sana Airport Airport for uh, two flights. Uh, per week. So far, we've seen only about one ship approved to to get through, and and, and that's been offloaded. There's another one in the holding area, and we're hopeful that that will, you know, enter the ports of Hodeida. And we haven't seen any flights out of Sana yet. So we're we're still, you know, monitoring this very closely. There has been some escalations. Uh, there has been some breakdown in Marib, but uh, for the most part, it has held and, and people are cautiously optimistic. I'll also announce that a, there was another shakeup here that people might have uh, might have seen in the news recently. President Hadi announced this week that he was transferring the power of the presidency to an eight-man presidential council 
effectively ending his term in office. And this is, you know, pr- probably one of the most significant things that we've seen of late. And the leadership shakeup is an attempt to try to, I think, find unity within the anti-Houthi coalition, you know, including the Isla Party, Southern Transitional Council, the folks that are opposing the Houthi advance. And They've also collapsed into, you know, infighting and, you know, there's not, this is, a lot of people are thinking that this could break down. It's really unclear if that these folks can actually get along, but, but I think uh, they are attempting to have this anti-Houthi alliance. So, you know, it's really unclear what's going to happen going forward. I do think that it's worth mentioning that uh, Senators, uh, Senator Sanders and Representatives Jayapal DeFazio and Kana have announced their intention of introducing a new Yemen war powers resolution mm-hmm. if we don't see an end to the war and blockade. And it's just interesting timing that uh, that the this truce announcement happened, you know, on the heels of that announcement of Congress wanting to reassert its Article One war powers and, and terminate ongoing U.S. participation in the war. So that's obviously pushing things in the right direction. But obviously, you know, there's a lot of factors. Uh, the Houthis have advanced their capabilities, uh, you know, to attack targets inside the UAE and Saudi. You've also got the wheat shortage. So there's a lot of factors. I want to get to all those in, in a second, but do you think that the the announcement of the War Powers Resolution that that, that progressives uh, or the not just progressives but some of the other anti war elements on the right as well in, in Congress are going to push to you know really put that type of pressure on the situation? Do you think that that played a role in in the negotiations toward the truce? You know, it's really hard to to know. I I certainly don't think. It could have hurt all at all, and I think that kind of pressure is going to incentivize the Saudi-led coalition and Saudi Arabia in particular to, you know, stay at the negotiating table. Because if the U.S. makes clear that we won't support in any way, you know, a resumption of U.S. participation in the Saudi air war, that might be one way to hold them. To, to this uh, truce and, you know, incentivize further negotiation to hopefully bring an end to this war uh, once and for all beyond the two-month truce. Like, it feels almost easier at this point to get the war powers resolution through, uh, because also you wouldn't have uh, hostility from, you know, Trump was hostile to the war powers resolution when it was pushed under his administration. I mean, you would certainly see some pushback, but not in the same way. At the same time, you know, if you're pushing this war powers resolution, trying to end the war in the middle of a truce, it feels hard to say no to that, right? Like, look, let's, it's just saying, let's not go to war. Let's not support a war that currently isn't happening. And so if you can get that war powers resolution in place, it really would seem to pressure the sides to entering into a permanent solution because the alternative for Saudi Arabia would be fighting without the U.S. behind them anymore. What is the Biden administration's you know, posture towards this war powers resolution and toward this, toward this truce? Do you feel like because there are now bigger uh, geopolitical fish to fry that they were putting pressure on Saudi Arabia to say, you know what, we don't have time for this right now. We don't have the luxury of this famine and this war right now. 
Yeah. Um, again, it's definitely complicated. You know, last year, the Biden administration announced an end to U.S. participation in the coalition's offensive operations. But, you know, we've continued to provide spare parts, maintenance, logistical support uh, for the Saudi warplanes, can, you know, conducting airstrikes. So we know that there's this ongoing U.S. P- participation piece. In response to the truce, they did, you know, welcome it. And I think that was a good thing for them to do. And in their statement out of the White House, they did say that, you know, we want to see an end to, you know, the blockade as well. They mentioned the fuel coming into Hodeida by name. So I think that's good. But, you know, we know that where the administration's been. And I, I think that in particular, Congress can really push this along and give political cover uh for the people that want to end this war right now, uh, because there are even people inside Saudi Arabia that I've heard uh, pushing, you know, even Mohammed bin Salman to, you know, keep the hostilities going and to not, you know, why are we supporting a truce with the Houthis? And you see, you know, other pro-war voices. So, you know, this is one way I think we can make it stick. And, you know, the threat of the war powers and the actual, you know, vote. So we don't necessarily, it's not a binary. We don't have to pass this thing to make it stick. Even just the threat of it right now has value add. I would argue that Mm -hmm. introducing and passing it would, you know, do even more. Uh, But just pushing in this direction on U.S. complicity uh, and U.S. participation in these Saudi-led coalition offensive operations, including, you know, the spare parts and maintenance that we mentioned before, is, you know, I think the right pressure point. And you you had mentioned the increased Houthi capacity. I want to step back to the beginning of this war for a second uh, to, to run up to that. Uh, so as, as I remember this starting, it was 2015 and you have the different uh, factions within the uh, Yemeni government uh, jockeying for position, negotiating over different power sharing agreements, a kind of you know, a standard coalitional dispute. The Houthis at one point pulled a bunch of forces, armed men outside of Sana'a and Somebody in the Houthis had the idea in the middle of one of these stalled negotiations. Let's do a show of force. Let's let's just let's just run our guys into Sanaa, and that will improve our negotiating position. And as uh, Akbar Ahmed at HuffPost and I reported at the time, Iran was actually strongly discouraging them from doing this. They were saying, "Do not try to like go into Sanaa with your armed forces. It's going to be a mistake. It's going to be a quagmire." Uh, they did it anyway, which kind of undermines the like. Iranians are kind of running the Houthis argument. Yeah. So they they did this anyway. And the U.S. knows this. The U.S. intercepted these communications. And they went in and the government just collapsed, like just, just pushed over kind of in, in a similar way, almost as the Taliban just kind of walked into Kabul. And then Saudi Arabia enters the war. And here we are seven years later. When the war started, the Houthis were, you know, severely under-equipped. But as you mentioned, they have since, and now Iran is helping them out. Like once the once the conflict had started, Iran's like, okay, we're going to back the Houthis. This is a way we're going to drain Saudi Arabia. We're not going to just leave them hanging out here. And so recently they've had the capacity to launch drone strikes against Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And, they, and they've been firing off missiles and strikes into Saudi Arabia as well. And there was a recent one where they lit up a, a Jeddah oil field uh, with some just absolutely massive explosion. And right after that, the uh, Houthis offered a ceasefire. I thought they were sort of trolling. 
the Saudis at that point. But it seems like that actually, that the Saudis took that seriously and said, you know what, let's let's talk. You know, the the Formula One race was in what was in Riyadh at this precise time, and the the racers are like, wait a minute, you're at war, you're getting bombed. You know, this is this is not something that we signed up for. And so I so I wonder if it disrupts their kind of cosmopolitan reputation. If you're in Abu Dhabi, you don't want to be bombed. It's very similar to the way that you had all of these media commentators uh, in Ukraine saying that they, they just couldn't understand how a war could be happening in Europe. But in the same way, I think a lot of people feel the same way about Abu Dhabi or feel the same way about Riyadh. Wars happen somewhere else, not there. So once it came there, it feels like, do you feel like that brought pressure on the warring parties to call an end to this? I I do think that that played a role, but it's not the only factor. I mean, you, you've also got, you know, the Biden administration trying to get the Saudi-led coalition to, you know, or Saudi Arabia, I should say, to produce more oil. You've got the wheat shortage as a result of, you know, the, uh, the Ukraine war. It's going to impact countries all over the Middle East. So, and you've also got the Iran nuclear negotiations, which are, you know, getting closer. We've heard that, you know, closer to the end of April, you could see this, you know, return to the JCPOA. You know, that's not a done deal, but there's a lot of factors swirling around, but that's definitely one of them, this increased capacity. And I, I just say that seven years of indiscriminate airstrikes and by the Saudis and, you know, their attempts to isolate the Houthis and avoid good faith diplomacy have really emboldened the Houthis and increased their, you know, domestic popularity. You know, the Houthis now govern territory with over 80% of the country's population. They're closer to Iran now. Saudi Arabia's policies, and this is what we've been saying for a long time, have no prospect of achieving even its stated goals of uh, you know, and it's just creating a humanitarian catastrophe. So I think, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, I, I really think that this situation could be headed in two directions. We could see uh, this truce that's formed turn into, you know, an actual end scenario, or it could just be, you know, something just like one bump along the road as we continue hostilities. And I'm hoping for the former. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And about a week before this ceasefire was agreed to, you and I were in a conversation with a Yemeni reporter in Sana'a uh, named Shuaib al-Mosawa. I want to play a quick clip from that interview. People here have, have lost hope that the war uh, is coming to an end uh, anytime soon. And they think uh, it's mainly because uh, the United States haven't uh, been willing to, to put an end to this. Whether they're correct or not, that's what the majority of the people here think. It's a phone call. They said that the U.S. can end it in a phone call. 
What does that assumption that the war is not going to end anytime soon? What does that do to to daily life? Like, is life still going on? You know, I know that one reason that the world's not paying a lot of attention to Yemen is that the refugee crisis is an internal one rather than refugees pouring out into other countries. So how how do how do people go about their lives just without any hope that this is going to end? They have uh, somehow adapted to to the hardships they have been through uh, for the past uh, seven years. They're suffering, they're resorting to to harsh coping measures to come about their daily lives. And, and uh, it's been a lot difficult, but they're uh, surviving, but not living actually. And so you had mentioned that the the war between Russia and Ukraine was disrupting global wheat supplies and that Yemen is heavily reliant on Russia and Ukraine for for wheat. So how did that play a role and what is the alternative? Like what what type of next few months and next year is is Yemen facing given the wheat crisis the world's going to face? Yeah, really important point and question. You know, the war in Ukraine has only exacerbated the humanitarian conditions in Yemen by making food, you know, even more scarce. Yemen imports over 27% of its wheat from Ukraine and about 8% from Russia. And the UN has reported that, you know, in Yemen, we could see famine numbers actually increase fivefold in the second half of 2022 as a result of the wheat import shortages and the ongoing Saudi fuel blockade. Um, You know, the Saudi-led coalition's restrictions on fuel uh, are a key driver of this economic and humanitarian crisis by making needs unaffordable. And I think if you combine the blockade and the wheat crisis that we're seeing, it's just it's really just too much for for Yemen. It's all, Yemen's already it's already too much because it's the world's worst humanitarian crisis. But uh, you know, adding this uh, you know wheat shortage, it just could send things in a very bad direction. And I think it's important to know that under the Biden administration, the Saudi fuel blockade is actually tightened. And they're on average, uh, you know, they're allowing in, you know, 3% of Yemen's fuel needs or 5% of Yemen's fuel needs per month to sustain Yemen. They essentially need 544,000 metric tons of fuel through these red seaports per month. And they're allowing far less than that. And, you know, again, the big part of this truce that we're watching is does Saudi actually allow fuel ships, UN approved fuel ships, I should say, uh, through these ports of entry? And do we actually, you know, see a lifting of these restrictions? Because the blockade, as David Beasley said uh, to the UN Security Council last year, the blockade must be lifted as a humanitarian act. And there was a report recently that at least one oil tanker was diverted by the Saudis to Saudi Arabia, despite having been UN approved. I mean, what what indications are you getting from over there that that this is going to work? Uh, do you think that these are these are hiccups and row bumps, or do you think these are signs that uh, the the whole thing might collapse soon? Well, we, we've always known that this was a fragile 
truce and the fragile ceasefire. And, you, you know, I, I think we have to measure things in inches right now, um, you know, getting one fuel ship and getting the next fuel ship or having one uh, flight leave Sana and then, you know, having the next one leave. So it's, again, we're at very early stages. Things could easily fall apart. And there, you know, we're already seeing skirmishes in Marib. Um, so uh, that's exactly why I think it's so critical that we do everything we can to support the Rep. Jayapal and Defazio War Powers resolution push. Again, they're, they're you know, lining up co-sponsors now. They have plans to introduce soon. And, uh, you know, I think in a moment like this, it's even more critical that, that we build support for that. I'll, I'll say that FCNL and others are working on building out a national organizational coalition. We've got about 60 national orgs on so far, including folks like Move On and Indivisible, um, you know, Demand Progress, uh, Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, and Quincy Institute is is supporting. We've got folks like Concerned Vets for America on board, uh, and so we're we're really trying to build out this coalition and and make a splash here because I think I really think that this is our you know again we could be heading for more war or actually you know an end scenario to uh, to finally lift these restrictions and resolve this humanitarian crisis or at least try to get it under control. This is the shot, you think? Yeah, I do. How, and you were mentioning the Iran deal. How does the Iran nuclear deal play into this? Is Iran has an interest as well in wrapping this up as part of the deal? It seems like the last piece of the Iran deal is how the Iranian Revolutionary Guard are going to be dealt with. You know, do do they get removed from the a terror list? Is there is there a relationship between the Yemen war and and that piece of the negotiations? Well, yeah, it, it's so. There's a history of it where the Obama administration essentially, you know, early on told Saudi, well, you know, we're trying to do this Iran nuclear deal. We'll give you your support for this war in Yemen in exchange, you know, you know, exchange for don't mess up our Iran nuclear negotiations. And that proved to be a real disaster for Yemen. So, you know, early on in its roots, this conflict has had, you know, unfortunate ties to the Iran nuclear deal. But you know, I'm a strong supporter of the JCPOA. We have to get back into that deal. I think, you know, we got to put that situation under control. If anything, you know, the war in Ukraine has just shown that, you know, we can't afford another war in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, or, or, or wherever. I, I would say that the JCPOA, you know, after getting in, it also provides a platform for further diplomacy between Iran and the United States to address the full range of areas of disagreement. And obviously this Yemen war is one of them. And, you know, the JCPOA was, you know, meant to be a starting point. So anyway, hopeful that this will help ease some of these tensions, de-escalate the situation, and also give hope for Yemen at the same time. And so, but does the Revolutionary Guard aspect play into this at all? You know, I, I think... That is the main sticking point right now, if you look at press reports, is, you know, can we delist um, the IRGC from the FTO or foreign terrorist organization list? And it remains to be seen whether or not that's going to be how much pushback you're going to see from Congress. It's, you know, can the administration overcome that that obstacle? Can we work out our differences? I've seen, I've heard of some, you know, potential paths forward, but Again, it's up to the negotiators uh, in, you know, working in Vienna to figure that one out. We certainly don't need the Iran nuclear deal to get peace.
peace in Yemen and we don't, you know, so it's not, I'm not saying that if, if, you know, that stalls that we necessarily, you know, can't, mm-hmm. don't have a path forward in Yemen. Clearly we do here with this truce, but obviously getting back into the Iran deal uh, would put wind in the sails of this peace process in Yemen, in my opinion. And, and what about the UAE's role here? My understanding from the beginning and as the war unfolded was always, the way I always heard it described was that it was really Saudi that wanted to wage the war in Yemen. And it's really the Saudi-led coalition backed by the UAE, backed by the United States. And it was the UAE that really wanted to go to into its quasi-war with Qatar. If you remember, they, you know, yeah. they blockaded the country. There were reports that subsequently emerged that they very nearly invaded Qatar, which would have been just wild considering that the US has a 10,000 strong person base in the country. And it was sort of like the Saudis would back the UAE in its conflict with Qatar and the UAE would back Saudi Arabia in its in its conflict in Yemen. It, but at different times, it seemed like the UAE and Saudi Arabia were on warring sides and they were kind of backing different factions that were fighting each other. So where is the UAE at this point? They're, they're, so you're saying that they're supportive of this eight-person council. Are they looking to put an end to this and focus elsewhere? Uh, yeah, so the UAE backs three of the folks on the presidential leadership council, and you know none of them necessarily are, are in agreement on, on what needs to happen. They have ties with the Southern Transitional Council, and though in 2020, at the height of congressional pushback against U.S. participation in the Saudi-UAE-led coalition's war in Yemen, um, because obviously they've been, you know, heavily involved. Uh, y- you know, they drew down militarily, uh, and they they saw this as giving them a black eye, and you know, in the press, like, okay, we, you know, they they didn't want anything to do with this. Right. It used to be described as the Saudi UAE led. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then you know, we sort of moved to the you know, really focusing on Saudi's ongoing involvement because they're behind the airstrikes and a lot of the blockade. But we, we can't lose sight of the fact that the UAE is still heavily involved, playing a negative and destructive role in this conflict. They have thousands of proxy forces that they that they fund and train and and support in the region. I'll also say that this doesn't get a lot of attention, but the UAE is also mm-hmm. occupying some some critical islands in Yemen, the Socotra Island, um, and that gives them this strategic you know military outpost in the Babel Mendeb Strait that they can use to monitor maritime traffic. So another thing that I've personally been working on is. Uh, trying to get Congress to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't have any U.S. funds in the National Defense Authorization Act in any way going to support the, you know, occupation uh, of these critical uh, islands uh, that belong to Yemen, you know, in a way to, you know, protect Yemeni sovereignty and make sure that that issue gets resolved. And these are, you know, Socotra Island is this beautiful heritage site with all this incredible wildlife. So uh, we definitely want to see them end, end their occupation there as well. As far as whether or not these folks on the uh, presidential council can agree, uh, you know, and you know, it's really hard to say at this point, like I said, I think it could go a number of different directions, either more fighting or, you know, towards a, a more lasting peace. So having worked on this for so long, what's your level of hope at this point that this might be the moment that it ends? You know, good question. Um, I am cautiously optimistic if we can continue the pressure. Um, and, and I think, 
you know, really Congress can play this really important role by supporting this war powers resolution. We've got members seized of the issue, uh, you know, members in the House and Senate. I will say that uh, Rep, um, you know, we've got a nice co-sponsor list behind the scenes here. Uh, early support from uh, folks on the House Intel Committee, some folks on House Armed Services, uh, some folks on House Foreign Affairs Committee, or you know, so I, I, I feel like like you've gone you've gone beyond the like hippies and the anti-war types. Like you've got <laughs> yes, uh, you know. So I, I think I think that there is uh, you know a strong desire on the Hill right now to see this conflict come to an end. I mean, we have such huge issues to tackle and, and this is one of them. And, and we have a path forward. Unlike some of the other issues that we're working on, it seems like we do have a path forward to resolve it. If, if we all, if everybody does what they're supposed to. Um, and so I'm, I'm still, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'll leave you with that, but it's going to take a lot of work and, and ongoing work. Well, good luck, Hassan. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Ryan. That was Hassan El-Tayeb, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.